the majority of people will see that excessive use of digital content, excessive consumption, leads to all kinds of problems, psychological, real-life, practical problems, you name it, and they will be able to self-correct. But there will be a subset of vulnerable individuals who have, you know, this innate vulnerability, plus maybe some other factors, trauma, co-occurring mental health disorder, life circumstance, that will make them susceptible to an actual full-blown addictive response to this digital content. And those individuals then will not be able to stop themselves despite the harm, and they will potentially need the help of others in our human society to uh, help them get out of that vortex and also potentially stay out of it. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Welcome back to another week of the Social Complex Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Anna Lemke, who is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is also the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, where she explores the problem of compulsive overconsumption, including digital products and how to achieve balance in a dopamine overloaded world. She also previously published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which explored the impact and implication of prescribers contributing to the opioid epidemic. In this episode, we explore the impact of dopamine on the addiction of social media. Dr. Lemke provides examples of how access to social media has opened up opportunities for negative behavioral side effects, how users can protect themselves to engage in social media wisely, and what precautions apps should take to lessen the risk of addiction among their users. I've learned a lot from this episode and also from Dopamine Nation. It is an incredible book with really great research, informative case studies, and just overall a great perspective to think about how we are being affected and interacting with the world around us, where maybe we can have some more introspection, reflection, everything. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for joining us today on the Social Complex Podcast. I have so many questions for you. We could probably be here all day, but we have to respect the time that <laughs> you've been so gracious to give uh, me and our audience. But I would love to have you introduce yourself to the audience, you and your work and everything that you have accomplished in your career thus far. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. I'm a psychiatrist. My area of concentration over the years has become the problem of addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders. I'm a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, chief of our addiction medicine dual diagnosis clinic and medical director of addiction efforts here more broadly. I'm also author of a couple of books, one called Drug Dealer MD about the Origins of the Opioid Epidemic, and then the more recent one called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which is uh, both a discourse on the neuroscience of pleasure and pain and why it matters for living in the modern world, 
as well as a plea uh, for a kind of a philosophical orientation on asceticism uh, in order to have more flourishing lives in a world of overwhelming overabundance. So that's kind of who I am. What even got you into this line of work? What gravitated you towards this specifically, and especially going down the road of trying to understand the effects of dopamine beyond just addiction in substance? I think it was just a, a growing awareness of our general misery, which initially appeared to be despite all of the abundance and comfort that we have. And then gradually it occurred to me that it was actually because of overabundance and that overabundance in and of itself is a kind of a modern day stressor because of this mismatch between our primitive wiring and this ecosystem that we've created. So I think, you know, you know, as a psychiatrist and as somebody who sees patients and who teaches, really my 24-7 is occupied with how to live better. You know, how can we live better? How can we maximize meaning and purpose and try to minimize the, the ways in which we make ourselves um, unhappy? And so along with that came, you know, this idea that, geez, this overabundance is really the source of our so much of our unhappiness and in order to be able to adapt to the world um, moving forward so that we don't literally titillate ourselves to death, we are going to have to figure out what to do about that. And then really seeing people with severe addiction in recovery as modern day prophets for, for all of us, not just those of us struggling with serious addictions, but really anybody living in the modern world. That's fascinating that we do have so much access to comfort, as you said, where we can get comfort, not just in the roofs over our head, but also in the satisfaction of all the knowledge that we could ever need at our fingertips. And it seems that there's almost a paralysis of information that we don't even have a full comprehension of how to take it in, absorb it, form opinions of our own. We are just living in this machine of endless right. bounds of information. How are people dealing with this in a, the most effective way so that they're not getting bombarded with just that unlimited access to everything and turning into that just paralysis of mush? Yeah, I think that... Um I mean, my sense is that the people who are navigating this best are people who have recognized on some level, whether or not they use the language that I will use, uh, which is the language of addiction, but um, people who have recognized that even information and facts have on some level become drugified in the sense that the medium and the quantity and the access and the potency of information has turned what otherwise might seem like a benign activity of knowledge acquisition uh, into an actual kind of feeding frenzy for a drug that releases dopamine that triggers uh, this kind of hedonic spiral that we get into. And so recognizing that is the first step. And then the second step is limiting or tempering consumption and realizing that we are not biologically designed to constantly bombard our reward pathway with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors and that we're going to drive ourselves crazy if we don't do something about that. And that, that something is to literally cut ourselves off to some degree and uh, figure out how to titrate 
our consumption to a, a level that's you know manageable and also that accomplishes what we want to accomplish, which is you know to learn or to understand or to be informed. So in the early days of your career, what types of addiction were most prevalent? Because social media specifically wasn't around as you were getting into med school and really going through those early stages of your career. What were you seeing most in the addiction space that was getting the most research and the most attention at that time? Well, the most common drugs from an epidemiologic perspective, both when I was in medical school and even now, are alcohol, nicotine products, and cannabis. And that's been true for probably hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, with cannabis maybe being a more recent, common, and increasingly potent drug. But, but those drugs sort of rule the roost. What was sort of exceptional and new in the early 2000s was the growing addiction to prescription drugs like prescription opioids, and prescription benzodiazepines and prescription stimulants. So this would include things like Vicodin, OxyContin, uh, Xanax, Clonopin, Ritalin, Adderall, those sorts of things. And that really popped in the early 2000s, which is what led me to write my first book about the, the you know, complicity that prescribers have, as well as other entities inside and outside of medicine, kind of driving this beyond what is actually healthy for the patient consumer. And then around 2010 or so, I started seeing more and more patients coming in with online pornography addiction, online gambling addiction. And then in the last five years or so, lots of gaming disorders of so video game addiction and more and more kind of just compulsive use of a diversity of digital content, um, including social media, YouTube, texting. So social media is always interesting because like, how do we define that? People classically think of Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Twitter, but really email is a form of social media, right? It, what is social media? It's, it's the exchange of information between humans, images and information. And, and that, that comes in many, many guises. That's also a part of video games, right? People communicate on Discord while they're playing video games. So it's kind of hard to narrowly define that. But broadly speaking, in the last five to 10 years, there's been a growing number of people who come in with serious addictions, really quite serious addictions to all forms of digital content. And sometimes people will say to me, well, that, how can that really be an addiction? Or that's not the same as addiction to alcohol and drugs. But I always push back on that because I can tell you that we do know that the, the same parts of the brain light up in response to these, uh, to digital content and behavioral addictions as to cocaine, alcohol, nicotine, cannabis. It's a very specific reward pathway that's been pretty well defined in the brain and is mediated by the neurotransmitter dopamine. But even beyond, you know, some of that neuroscience is also the clinical manifestation or phenomenology of these behaviors. Um, which is essentially how we diagnose any mental illness. There are no brain tests, brain scans, or blood tests to diagnose any mental health disorder. We base it on phenomenology or patterns of behavior through time that we consider to signify a form of psychopathology. And the pattern of behavior when people get addicted to behaviors is the same as when people get addicted to drugs or alcohol. They start out using for fun or to solve a problem. If it works for them, they return to use. Over time, they develop tolerance. They need more and more drug and more potent forms to get the same effect. 
pretty soon they're investing enormous amounts of energy, creativity, time, money into obtaining the drug, using the drug, hiding the drug use. And then, of course, the sine qua non of addiction, uh, that their drug use begins to interfere with their life goals, their values, their relationships, physical health, their professional status. And sometimes people don't see it. You know, there's a level of denial. But even when people do see it, they have difficulty stopping. And that's really the ultimate hallmark of addiction. That's very true. And I think a poignant point about the consumables that we usually associate with addiction. If you can't consume it, you can't be addicted to it. But as you said, experiences and indulgences in other ways, we are seeing more and more of that. And I think that anytime that there's that societal lag where it's like, oh, that's not a big deal. That's not a huge thing. I have no surprise, no shock that you are seeing more and more patients, even in the video game space, which is absolutely to your point, a social endeavor and a social, you know, socialization of some sort via the internet. And I remember back in the day doing a AIM AOL Instant Messenger. Did you have did you have that at any point? No. <laughs> no, I didn't. That one I skipped proud, over that one. <laughs> proud millennial here, but that ding and the door opening and right. the door closing sound, I mean, mm-hmm. I still feel like a reaction because I was right. in, you know, that early teenhood and it was right. so important at that time and I just didn't really fully wrap my head around it. Right. But was there a lot of research at that time or awareness around non-substance addictions? Well, we've known for many, many decades that people can get addicted to things like gambling, right? And and that's cross-cultural. Almost any culture you look at, there are severe addicted gamblers, people who have, you know, wonderful educated people who have gambled away their entire life savings, uh, including, you know, their their family's assets. Gamblers Anonymous, which is modeled on the 12 Steps of Alcohol. Alcoholics Anonymous has been around since at least the 1950s. So there's long been recognition that certain types of behaviors are vulnerable to uh, the same pathology as we see with the compulsive overconsumption of, of substances. But it's really only, I think, in the last couple of decades that there's this growing awareness that people can get addicted to all kinds of behaviors. Um, And I would really put very high at the top of that list, pornography, compulsive masturbation, um, sex, relationships. And of course, this is what social media has really exploded. The ease with which now we can have those kinds of highly reinforcing connections that, you know, release a lot of dopamine and so hence are quite addictive and spiral very quickly to a a very sad and potentially life-threatening place. You know, I have patients coming in really suicidal because mm-hmm. of their pornography and sex addictions. Same thing with video games, seeing a lot of that. So there's growing awareness, but to be fair, there's also continued controversy. So for example, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is our compendium, and really it's an international, not just a, a United States or Western world compendium for classifying mental disorders, it does not include things like pornography addiction or gaming disorder or social media addiction. Yeah, it does does not include those. And um, it sort of tentatively includes gambling addiction, but that's really the only process or behavioral addiction. On the other hand, if you look at the wow. international um, codes for mental disorders, gaming disorder is included. So that's interesting, right? 
And some people speculate that that's because the influence of China has been very strong in terms of the international classifications. And very influential people in China are very concerned about gaming disorder. There are a couple paper, papers written speculating that's because the sons of uh, powerful people in China have gaming disorders. And so it's now, you know, made it on the map as a real addiction so that resources go toward it. The analogous phenomenon here in the United States is with the opioid epidemic. You know, the opioid epidemic in its first wave really primarily afflicted middle-class white people. And there was a huge rallying cry around that, that time in the early 2000s to conceptualize addiction as a disease, not as a moral or social failing, and to marshal resources and get insurance reimbursement to treat it. And, you know, a, a very fair criticism of that is that, you know, in the 1990s, when mostly black and brown people living in inner cities were struggling with a terrible crack cocaine addiction, there was no uh, similar rallying cry um, around addiction being a disease. So anyway, th these are just interesting examples of the way in, in which addiction in particular is a biopsychosocial illness. There's a biological component, real brain changes, but there's also these important psychological and social sociological contextual aspects. What are the components that are going to make somebody a little bit more susceptible to this type of an experiential addiction? Well, you know, this is a good question. Uh, we, we, there are some sort of universal risk factors for addiction that can broadly be categorized into nature, nurture, and neighborhood. So nature refers to the fact that at least with alcohol family studies, we have good data showing that if you had a biological parent or grandparent with an alcohol addiction, you're at increased risk to develop an alcohol addiction yourself, even if raised outside of the alcohol-using home. Um, so I, I think that those data are pretty reliable, and I've certainly seen that in my clinical practice. People adopted to non-substance-using families, but whose biological parent uh, was uh, had an, an addiction problem who then find themselves struggling with serious addiction problems. So I really think there's an innate biological component. It's, it's complex. It's multigenic. Uh, it has to do probably with some difficulty with emotion dysregulation, reward sensation seeking, impulsivity, future planning, all these kinds of traits that can characterize us. The other uh, major bucket of risk factor is what we call nurture, and that has to do with how we're raised. So just like with all other mental and physical health disorders, if you experience some significant childhood trauma, you're at increased risk for uh, developing an addiction. But also, if you're raised in a home where substance use is explicitly or implicitly condoned by your caregivers, i.e. your parents, you're at increased risk. So this has interesting implications for social media and digital and screen addictions because you know, we see a lot of families coming in who are upset about the way their kids are using their phones, but they themselves are on their devices constantly. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, th this really is a social contextual problem as well. Which brings us to this last bucket of risk, which is um, neighborhood. And what neighborhood gets at is that access, simple access to a drug is one of the biggest risk factors for getting addicted to that drug. So if you grow up in a neighborhood where a certain type of drug is sold on the street corner and the people around you are using it, you're more likely to use that drug yourself and hence more likely to get addicted. And of course, I mean, it's just self-evident that we're all digitally connected and tempted at every turn and that the corporations that profit from this digital content are a 
very specifically monetarily motivated to keep us engaged. They employ neuroscientists who know exactly how to do that. They, as you know yourself from your own work, you know, rabidly study these metrics to see what keeps people on and what doesn't. And then they optimize what keeps people engaged because they make their money from the advertisements and the advertisements, you know, they're more willing to pay if people stay longer on that platform where they can show their ads. So it's all about sort of the dark side of capitalism. Having said all of that, it's also important to keep in mind the fundamental concept of drug of choice. So what that means is that what may release a lot of dopamine in my reward pathway may not necessarily release a lot of dopamine in your reward pathway. So for example, I'm fairly immune to things like alcohol, cannabis, caffeine. It just don't do very much for me, but I'm very susceptible to digital content in the realm of human connectedness and social media. So what that means is that with these new drugs like social media that didn't exist before, we've also greatly increased the potential net of people who are going to be vulnerable to addiction because we've got these new drugs that for some people might just exactly be, um, you know, their drug of choice. And the internet just completely shifted how we operate every day in our daily lives. Is there any idea about how those kinds of dramatic shifts like that with accessibility, as you said, to mass amounts of information and entertainment changes how we operate and how we process? Well, there's a lot of good correlative evidence, so much correlative evidence that I think you could make the leap and say it's causative. Um, and I, I do make that leap that as our time spent on the internet has gone up, our happiness quotient has gone down and that the stark increase in depression, anxiety, insomnia, inattentiveness, and overall sense of misery in the past 20 to 30 years is not just correlating with the increased amount of time we're spending online and consuming digital content, but actually caused by the consumption of that digital content. And that's really the claim that I make in the book, trying to use the neuroscience and our understanding of pleasure and pain and um, all of that to understand how that might actually be working in our brains. And as you mentioned in Dopamine Nation, you do have that equilibrium that the brain is always trying to suss out and make sure that it is finding that balance between the pleasure and the pain. And what you're saying here is that the more that we are trying to achieve the pleasure online, the more pain we're enduring in other aspects through depression, anxiety, whatnot. Do you foresee that potentially shifting the future of how people do consume online that they probably potentially may end up spending less time online and using less products? Or do you think that based on how dopamine in the brain operates, it actually will continue them to go further and further chasing that feeling? So most people who drink alcohol do not become addicted to alcohol. It's about 10 to 15% annual prevalence and about 25% lifetime prevalence of individuals who develop an addiction to alcohol. And I think we're in for the same thing with social media and other digital content. The majority of people will see that excessive use of digital content, excessive consumption leads to all kinds of problems, psychological, real life, practical problems, you name it. And they will be able to self-correct and they are do they are already doing that, people young and old. 
but there will be a subset of vulnerable individuals who have, you know, this innate vulnerability, plus maybe some other factors, trauma, co-occurring mental health disorder, life circumstance, that will make them susceptible to an actual full-blown addictive response to this digital content. And those individuals then will, will not be able to stop themselves despite the harm and they will potentially need the help of others in our human society to uh, help them get out of that vortex and also potentially stay out of it for the long term. And I know you mentioned that this wasn't in the, is, is it the DSM? Yeah, the di- DSM, sorry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's a mouthful. My, psych- my psychology <laughs> minor is coming in handy. Yeah, it's coming, <laughs> like, back, coming back to haunt you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I loved it. I loved my psych classes. Oh, great. So in the DSM, though, you don't have social media as an addiction classified. How would one classify social media addiction? Hypothetically, we would classify an addiction to social media or any other digital content the same way that we classify it to drugs and alcohol, which is that there's an 11 criteria checklist. And the more of those criteria you check, the more severe your addictive disorder. They range from mild to moderate to severe. Two to three is mild, four to five is moderate, and six and above is a severe um, use disorder or a severe addiction, although the DSM doesn't actually use the word addiction, but I like that word. It's the most commonly understood word. And without going through each of these 11 criteria, because they're hard to remember and awkward, um, usually what we talk about is the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences. And so those are sort of a way to capture or summarize those DSM 11 criteria. Control has to do with out of control use, so planning to be online for a certain amount of time and finding that you are repeatedly extending that time compulsions, uh, kind of a level of automaticity where you're reaching for your phone or find yourself looking at YouTube or Instagram or playing League of Legends, even when you hadn't planned on it or in fact had planned not to. Craving is when you try to cut back, uh, you experience both physiologic, meaning body embodied, but also psychological intense cravings to want to use that drug. Sometimes that can manifest as FOMO or fear of missing out or whatever you know narrative your brain elaborates to get you to go on the device again. And then finally, and probably most importantly, is consequences, especially the continued use despite consequences. And what types of consequences are we seeing when people get addicted to digital content? Well, first of all, they're spending an enormous amount of time there at the expense of basic wellness, getting enough sleep, exercising, taking care of their bodies, cleaning themselves, eating properly, They're not then investing in other activities that are consistent with their goals and values, helping with family members, going to work, going to school, doing homework, caring for children. And there can be, you know, any untold number of other consequences, including the subtle psychological and psychiatric symptoms that are a result of continued engagement with any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. Are you finding that people who are affected by this are gravitating towards one platform, one region, or another, or is it pretty universal across the board? Um, Well, I mean, you know, so humans are very social creatures, and addiction tends to act a lot like a virus and spread as a contagion 
through communities. Uh, this is true for hard substances, like if you have in a certain region where people are using, you know, oxys, then other people start using oxys. And it's the same thing on the internet when everybody's playing League of Legends or Fortnite, they hear about it, and then all of a sudden everybody gravitates toward that. And again, you know, uh, most people are able to kind of self-correct, although it's a question whether whether or not children and adolescents really can, which is why we have laws that forbid letting minors into casinos or allowing them to purchase cigarettes or even to purchase cannabis in states where cannabis is medicalized or recreationally legal. We, we recognize that the adolescent child brain is different, and yet we give kids their own devices as early as age three and let them have unlimited access to TikTok. So kind of scary thoughts. Are you finding that you're seeing more of these types of patients that are coming in that are younger, older, all ages? What's what's the age range that you're mostly seeing? Really all all ages, really all ages. I mean, the social media and the gaming is mostly the younger people, the adolescents and the young adults. The pornography and sex addictions, primarily men of all ages, seeing a surprising number of older people who are spending inordinate amounts of time uh, watching YouTube videos and things like that, you know, even seemingly benign things like cat videos, but spending a lot of time. Now, some of this is a function of, you know, um, having less mobility, uh, maybe being isolated. I mean, these are other, other risk factors, right? But the, the end result is the same, that, that overall mental health and well-being is, is compromised. And that's fascinating that it is touching all age ranges at various levels, all demographics, psychographics, because it is so accessible. It has yeah. been able to be, everyone can get into it. You can do whatever you want. And it, even kids can lie about their age to get, to get on Facebook if they really were so inclined to do so. So yeah, it's wild. The lying piece and the anonymity piece is a big part of it too, right? So mm -hmm. when people can be anonymous in their online consumption, then many of the social norms and social strictures that might have um, encouraged people to hesitate previously are no longer in place. And in, in fact, even further than that, all, for, all many different forms of what, what, what I'll, I'll call deviance, for lack of a better word, are now normalized. Um, and that raises a lot of questions for our society going forward. That is very true. And when you say deviance, I immediately think of trolls. Are you familiar with the term trolls and trolling yeah. online and whatnot? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you would never, there's people out there that you would never hear someone say that to someone else's face right. yet on the internet. It's like the wild west, everything goes. Right, right. What yeah, and there's a little dopamine kick from that too, right? Right, Like that kind of defiance, doing that thing that you're not allowed to do. What do you think that, is there anything that apps can do, League of Legends, any of these platforms that are contributing to this behavior and, you know, in, in, to some degree enabling it, what can they do to put better safeguards, better protection, better consumption for the end user so that they can stay safe? Yeah. So it's a great question and it's an important one and one that a lot of people are asking. 
built into the very DNA of this digital content is the idea that it's engaging and absorbing. So it's really hard to know how to separate it out. But I do think that there are some things that can be done. For example, if you look at um, video games and you look at people's efforts, whether it's a parent or a clinician like myself working with, with a young person who's struggling with video games, one of the biggest barriers is, of course, that the entire friendship group um, you know, is connected through the game. But also, there's this terrible thing where if you miss a day, you lose your streak, right? Mm-hmm. And when you lose your streak, you lose out on certain bennies, like uh, you know, more weapons or more you know, virtual money or more status in the world, such that if you were then to rejoin later, you would be way behind your friends and other people who had been on every day. This, I think, is really a terribly insidious and addiction-promoting aspect of these types of interfaces. And I think it would be great if we could find some way to eliminate those, or at least eliminate those for minors. Now, one model to look at is what China has done, which is very interesting. China has decreed from on high, which could never happen here in the United States, but it's nonetheless an interesting model to look at, that minors, children cannot play video games except for two hours a day, two days a week, approximately, all at the same time. And that the companies who make the video games are responsible for ensuring that 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 is enforced using, for example, facial recognition software. So I think that this kind of thing is a very good idea if you can implement it. Because what it says is that, you know, hey, you're not, you can't, to a, to a younger child, you can't play video games, but none of your friends can either. And you'll all get to play together on Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. right? And of course, these kinds of safeguards, there are lots of ways to get around it. People in China are already doing that, you know, getting somebody else's image, whatever. But in general, you know, what I hope it is meant is, is a massive reduction in the amount of time that young people in China are playing video games and a support for parents who are working so hard to try to limit that activity. So those, that sort of um, cooperation between federal government regulations, the corporations who make and profit from these devices, and then the consumers, I think is ultimately where we need to head, especially when we're thinking about protecting young brains, which are still at a crucial stage. That just seems like it has to be at this stage, something that parents in the United States are very aware of is that there are the implications, the negative health implications that could happen with kids. And these are the things that they need to be on the lookout for since we probably won't get to that level of (laughs) government oversight. So what can parents do to help create and be alert around making a better and safer and more responsible environment for their kids. Yeah. So, I mean, I talk a lot about this in Dopamine Nation, kind of what can we actually do as individuals and as parents. And it really does start with a time away from the digital content in order to reset reward pathways so that the individual can recognize that indeed they were addicted and that a lot of the pull to continue to play uh, or to engage with the content was not because it was rewarding or fun or achieved the purpose that we originally set out to achieve, but rather because we had been caught in this vortex of addictive consumption. Um, And also that time away uh, resets reward pathways such that we can take pleasure in what we call natural rewards, just being together with friends, eating a good meal, enjoying, you know, nature. Um, So I think it does really need to start there. I advise 
families to do this collectively together, whether it's a month, which is what I recommend, or even a shorter amount of time, a week, or even a single day, a kind of digital Sabbath. I really encourage that as a time to reflect on our relationship with these devices and how we want to be in relationship because it's not as if, you know, the devices are going away, nor would we really want them to, but we do have to figure out how to be in healthy relationship with them. Mm. So that's one of the first things. And then I talk a lot about self-binding strategies. These are both literal and metacognitive barriers that we can put between ourselves and our drug of choice. Something as simple as in between using my phone, I literally power it all the way down before I put it in my bag. Now, this makes people really anxious because a powered down phone is a non-receptive phone. People are really afraid of not being able to be available or be contacted. And for some people, for their work, maybe they have to keep it on. But even so, then I would suggest that you create time boundaries uh, in a single day, for example, when you will have the device on and be available, and then outside of which you will power down the device and actually not respond to it. These are really challenging um, things that you know I myself struggle with on a regular basis, but I think it's a, it's a worthy fight as we continue to try to figure out, again, how to be in healthy relationship with this technology. That's a really interesting segue to this next question that I have for you, because in the social media community, the manager community, people who are on social media as their career and they are managing brand pages, they are responding consistently, they are on. I have seen, especially after 2020, I think that was a breaking point for a lot of social media professionals. And it's an ongoing, I wouldn't say joke, but it's a young man's game because it just leads to such intensive burnout. What advice, if any, perspective, considerations, what nuggets would you give to anyone working in the digital media, social media space who feel like they are hitting and heading towards burnout? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, my, I have two basic pieces of advice for this particular dilemma, which I respect is a real, um, real dilemma. Um, when your livelihood is actually the device and the digital content but I recommend two things. Um, I recommend what, what happens is we, end, so there's a, a concept to, in diabetes care called chronic sedentary feeding, where we have reached a point in our culture uh, where we're sort of nibbling all day long rather than having, you know, three meals a day. I think the same thing is happening with our consumption of digital content. So I think the antidote to that, similar to when we're tackling diabetes is to be very deliberate about consolidating the time when you're going to be on and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be on for two hours in the morning from nine to 11. And then I'm going to be on, you know, if you have to pulse it twice, maybe you don't have to, maybe you want, that's good enough. I'm going to be on two hours in the afternoon. And then outside of that, I'm not going to be on, I'm not going to read, I'm not going to respond. And when I'm on, I'm not going to be doing other things. So I will really laser focus. I will find a quiet space. I will do all of the responding I need to do with my social platform, and then I will get off again. And to part of that, what can enhance, this is the second piece of that, that before you even turn on your device, you make a little list about what you're going to do when you get on the device. And you're very intentional about sticking to that list. So you don't find yourself going and doing some down some, some rabbit hole. Now, if you're going on the device for your own entertainment, then schedule that too. say, I'm going on this device to watch this movie, right? 
or I'm going to go on this device. I'm going to watch half an hour of TikTok or who knows what, you know, then set alarm. But just being intentional before we even go on the device. Why am I going on the device? What am I going to do on the device? When am I going to get off the device? That's perfect advice because it is a, and, and me too. I'm, I, I, I found myself hitting a point where I'm like, man, I need a digital detox and this right. is my career. How can I right. possibly, and leaning on community of, you know, it's a team effort and having other people right. that are a part of the brand, I think is so right. important, but yeah. historically brands that, especially ones that hire in house and they only have one person that's designated to social media, that's a ton of pressure on that one person. And similar to what you were talking about earlier with the streaks. I remember on Snapchat, I think they still have it streaks where you can build that up. And that does have such an almost like devastating real life effect when it goes away. It's similar with influencers and creators where they're producing content their entire lives or the sector of their lives that they decide to disclose is on full display all day, every day. And they're having to craft content. They're having to think about how can I make this part of my life interesting enough or what can I add, you know, a little bit of zest, a little bit of flavor to, even though in a normal day that might not be necessarily the, the real me. And they're also dealing with that layer of pressure where it's how do you continue to stay on? And if you don't stay on, you're going to lose out on your, you know, uh, your exposure, your impressions that you're getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I hate to say this, but basically they're the drug dealers. Um, and you know, they have to ante up the potency because their consumers will develop tolerance. Then pretty soon you gotta, you know, you gotta, be wearing a bikini when you're on and then you got to be naked. And then, you know, it's, it's a problem. I I think if we're very clear about the purpose for our being present and what we hope to accomplish and it's consistent with our values, then we have to do some degree of just believing in that sort of the ground of that purpose and just also then letting go and not, not trying to control it and just, you know, it's going to go where it's going to go. And similar to the idea of the the drug dealers with the creators, it's also the brands. Yeah. The ones that I love and the ones that I work with. And I, when we were, before we even started recording, I was telling you how I have a, just a full curiosity about what impact we are having. And if we are going to continue operating and you know, promoting business. Cause there is a beautiful side to social media, which is that you create community. You see something that you're like, wow, I thought that was just me. You know, there's a lot of that that happens with shared experiences, shared yeah. moments. That is mm-hmm. really nice. Yes. And on the flip side, you also have this technology that as you've mentioned previously, it is designed to get you in. It's designed to suck you in. It's designed. So it's almost like it passes over (laughs) just from a sweet thing to a, you're using this against, you're using people's emotions against themselves. So I think that when the social dilemma came out, I don't think I knew one social media digital marketer that was shocked. And I had plenty of other people that were not in the profession that were completely shocked. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. such a moment of clarity where I'm like, wow, <laughs> I was not surprised one bit, right. but 
that that's because you're in the thick of it. How can brands who control the advertising dollars and funds for these platforms, what can they do to hold apps accountable and maintain an ethical position when it comes to how they're using social media as an advertising avenue? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I would say this is outside of my area of expertise, so I, I don't have a lot of informed ideas. But one thing I have said before, hoping that people who are expert in this area will at least give this kind of a little bit of uh, trying to promote maybe some out of the box thinking, you know, should we really rethink the way that advertising is done? I mean, if we were to completely forbid advertising from social media um, or forbid advertising in any kind of social media consumed by children, I mean, that would really change the financial incentives and make it maybe make it not viable, right? I don't know. But I do wonder if we really, as a society, need to rethink the promotion of products, period. Because at the end of the day, I mean, like, what is it all about anyway? We're just trying to get people to buy more things. We don't need more things. We all have too many things. We're all sort of running on this really horrific treadmill, which is destroying us, destroying our planet. I don't know. I mean, um, I I know that's sort of, you know, is there a way to have a free, open and capitalist market and not have free and open advertising? I, I don't know. Maybe there is. Yeah, it's something to think about. And, you know, philosophically, how you're showing up. And I think that core value, and like you mentioned with values and having personal values and making sure that you're working with organizations that have shared values of your own. And that's, I, I think that in this day and age, probably the best we can do. But I, it's something that I do mull on quite a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Cause advertising is my career and I'm right. That's, that's how you pay your bills, right? That's how I pay my bills. But it is interesting to think about what's the right way to do it. And in advertising you have, you know, I wouldn't even call it FOMO, but it is FOMO where it's like similar addiction wise. If you are a, you know, creator, or if you're, you know, having a social media addiction forming in your life that's similar of where you don't want to miss out and you can't get behind same thing in advertising you can't really get yeah. behind right you can't otherwise everyone's going to push you out of business and then you're going to be yeah not having a job yeah it's really hard i mean i mean i would <laughs> hope i would hope that the positive things that people get from social media and the communities that can be built and the kind of validating you know experiences that are can be so positive. It would be great if there would be a way to achieve that without advertising. Yeah. That would be a fascinating evolution. And yeah, I mean, I guess the bottom line is, would people be willing to pay for belonging to, you know, an online community? Cause that's, that's, that's the alternative, right? It's sort of a that is a membership question. subscription. Have you heard of be real? Uh-huh. I have. So be real has no advertising. They're fully funded by outside investors and I am, and they don't charge a fee to get in. I am fascinated to see which route they take. 
Yeah, where they ultimately go once their source funding dries up. Because, yeah, you can't just get funding until the end of time. you got to make yeah. money because this, yeah. this is the world we live in. <laughs> well, I'll keep an eye on that. My A couple of my kids are on that. I know. I'm really glad I'm not. I don't want to see them being real on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey. All of it is a journey. It's yeah. a lot to keep up with. Anna, thank you so much for You're joining welcome. me. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your insight, your perspective. You are an incredible author, an incredible resource. Dopamine Nation is your most recent book. How can people follow you, consume, learn from you? Where can they find you? Well, it will not be a surprise to you to learn that I'm not on social media. <laughs> so really, um, you know, the way to, I guess, learn more about my thinking and my research is to just read the books. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Lemke. We will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.